Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So we're going to finish at 3.30 today, so that means this is our last 40 minutes or so together. So sad. <laughs> For some of you, you're like, I don't want to take it anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I'm really aware of it. Often I'm feeling things before others are, and then if it's reflected in them, it's like, uh-huh. whoa. Yeah. Anyway, so for people who are, have that ability, yeah. is this still a useful practice? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, um, one of the things that I noticed when I did this process is yeah. that I sort of felt really good to do the second part. The second part. Because yeah. I think that I have a great ability to connect to somebody's suffering. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm Yeah, we're connecting with the suffering, but don't let it stick. Yeah, but (laughs) for me to see that second part, or to feel... Exactly. I I could could feel both parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it was was really interesting for me because it it was um, an experience of detachment. Uh huh. Um, where I think, for me, there's a bridge from empathy to compassion. Uh huh. Uh huh. When I when I could experience doing that same right. piece yep. alongside. Right. Because there's an active component to it. And maybe just an acceptance of suffering and healing. Yep. yep. And some kind of interplay with that. Yeah. So, so let's sum up, okay? So this is the third section of the seven-point attitude training, attitude refinement, training in compassion. And this is the section on relative compassion. So section two was about absolute compassion, idealistic. Section three is about the relative which is how do you embody this relationally, meditatively, for real? Not as idealistic. So it begins with Tonglen practice, which is a meditative practice that in Tibetan means giving and receiving. In this practice, you send out loving energy to others, and you take in any suffering that other people feel or that you imagine or see other people feeling. 
And you take in suffering with a sense of openness. And you send out with a sense of openness. So that's what we're training in. All the pores receiving, all the pores sending. Uh, people need help. And we use this practice to extend help to people. Especially to people who sometimes we can't physically help. Or we can't emotionally help. This is one way of helping people who we can't be near or who can't receive our help. On the in-breath, you breathe in whatever particular uh, group of people or country or community or one particular person. Maybe it's not like a global situation. Maybe it's just one person. You take them in, breathing in their physical discomfort, breathing in the mental anguish that they might feel, breathing in the stress of chemotherapy. Um, maybe it's the pain of people who've lost someone close to them. You've seen how their grieving process is going and how difficult it is for them. And you take that in also. You breathe in their suffering, knowing that you long for them to be free of suffering. And you breathe in their suffering, even though you know you want to be free of suffering. You do both. You breathe in their suffering, even though you don't want there to be any suffering. And then you send out the exhale, but you don't really send it out. You just relax out. So you exhale, and as you exhale, you're relaxing the breath out, and you're sending space so that people's hearts and minds can have space in them. Because what's suffering? Suffering is an absence of space. Suffering is when there's something you're experiencing that has no space around it. So they have enough space so they can live with their discomfort, because you can't solve that. They have enough space so they can live with their fear, because you can't solve that. They have enough space so they can feel their anger, which you can't take away from them. Or maybe their despair, or maybe their mental instability that you can't solve. Maybe the psychiatrist is doing a really good job with the right med combo so that their life is coming more and more into balance, but the combo's not there yet. And it's been two years, still trying to find the right combo, and it's not there yet. Okay, so they're a little better. You're still sending out the space. For those who are suffering... You're just exhaling out space and safety and comfort. So in the in-breath, you're breathing in the pain of people 
and the pain of animals and the pain of nations and the pain of like any group that identifies in a certain way that makes them oppressed, for example. And then you relax your breath out and radiate healing, loving energy. I hated this practice. Hated, hated, hated this practice. And used to always ask, why do we do this? <laughs> I just want to get concentrated. Like, why are you bringing all this into my mind? Well, you do this for two reasons. One is it teaches you how to train your heart to do what it doesn't want to do. Which is to go towards what's hard and not away from it. Why do you do this? Because your heart doesn't want to do this. And if we're in a compassion gymnasium, trying to exercise our compassion muscle, then there are certain movements or vocabularies that we don't want to train. Right? If you're an athlete, you've been training specifically in a similar pattern through similar lines of training for years and years and years. Right? But we know that if you want to really develop as an athlete that's pitching all the time, you need to do some cross-training in other areas. And your trainer is going to teach you how to find mobility and strength in the areas that are the shadow areas that you miss, that are not necessarily the pitching areas. So, for example, I know somebody who trains NBA basketball players. In the off-season, one of the things he teaches basketball players is how to get into really awkward ranges of movement in their ankles and get really strong in their ankle and knee joints in very strange ranges of movement. Why would you need that? Well, you need that because what's the number one injury for a basketball player is coming down out of the sky and landing on an ankle in a strange range of movement. So they spend their off-season training injuries, going into all the areas where the ankle's going to get injured and getting it really strong. It's so smart, right? And that's their off-season training. And it creates a team where there's less injuries during the year because you get injured in the vulnerable areas, right? So likewise, this is cross-training for our heart. If we want to be pro-compassion people, like imagine if being compassionate was considered athletic and we really want to compete. I want to be the most compassionate person in Kelowna. I want to be the Machu Ricard of Kelowna. You train. You have to do training. And part of the cross-training is to see where our heart doesn't want to go. So that's number one. The second, and I mentioned this earlier, is to realize that your own suffering and the suffering of others is not different. There are no others. Talk to somebody who spent time being homeless and they'll tell you that the worst part of being on the streets is the loss of dignity from people not treating you 
like a person. They give you change, and as they're giving you change, they look away. How many times do we do that? We hand someone money and do this. That You're othering them. They're other. And why do you do that? To protect me. We don't think about it. We just do that. So now we're training the opposite. Cross-training. You see? There's a psychoanalyst, a child psychoanalyst uh, in London, England, named Adam Phillips. Um, He writes, There's nothing we could know about ourselves or another that can solve the problem that other people actually exist and we are utterly dependent on them. Yeah, a few times. There's nothing we could know about ourselves or another that can solve the problem that other people actually exist and we are utterly dependent on them. We have this idea sometimes that if we develop enough internally, we'll be okay. He's saying here, there's no development you can do that solves the problem that other people exist and that you're totally interdependent. So what do we do? According to the text, we practice sending and receiving on the breath. Once you get good at this, you don't really think about it so much. You're just taking in and giving. Taking in, giving. It just kind of like physical, if that makes sense. Then uh, it says, um, begin sending and receiving this with yourself. For some people, that comes naturally. For some people, whoa. I mean, I can really take in someone else's suffering, but my suffering? Wow, I've never even really thought about that. Then the next thing that's said is turn things around. I'm going to go through this part a little quickly, just because I want to cover a lot. Um, Turn around three objects. So for those of you who haven't done formal Buddhist study, uh, the three objects are attractive, not attractive, and neutral. So what that means is uh, when you feel sensations in your body... They fall into three baskets. Sensations that are attractive, they're pleasurable. Sensations that are not attractive, meaning you really don't want to take them in. And sensations that are neutral, there's just nothing there. So turn that around. So practice. Notice where you're clinging to pleasure and know how to recognize that. Notice where you don't want to be in what's unpleasurable and turn that around. Notice where neutrality is arising and you get bored and turn that around. Then turn around the three poisons. What are the three poisons? Greed, hate, and delusion. When you start to notice greed... Practice generosity. When you notice hate, take care of it and watch what it turns into. Love. When you notice 
delusion, take care of it, and watch what it turns into, uh, clarity. And then the three virtues, uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is your capacity to be awake. The Dharma is whatever you're awake to, which is what's right here. And Sangha is community, which is what allows you to practice and who you serve. I could spend uh, a whole day just on that section. Then number 10, always train with the bumper stickers. <laughs> I love that one. It's a reminder of going, just in case you've forgotten and you're like ready to start making up your own brand of meditation, stick to the slogans. Train with the slogans. And then point four, I'm only going to cover the first two, and that's enough for today, I think. The first one is turn all mishaps into the path. And the second, which is number 12, drive all blames into one. So, this is advice on how to work in community and how to work in your family. When we're irritated, we look for someone to blame, and this creates the conditions for aggression, and then the habits of aggression keep expanding as we keep blaming. This starts happening at a very young age. Go look at any schoolyard. When you start to feel blaming energy, pause and look at what's happening with you. In Zen practice, we say swallow the blame. Swallow the blame. And this comes from a story where there's a, mo I'll see if I remember it, but there's a monastery and they sit at long tables for the meals. And the practice would be you would go into the kitchen, you'd pick up a bowl, you'd set it down and you'd serve the teacher first. And then you'd sit down and then the bowl gets passed around. So one of the cooks is at the table, puts the pot down, serves the teacher and as he's serving the teacher, he sees that a snake, a small snake, has gotten into the soup. So as he sees the snake in the ladle, he grabs it and puts it in his mouth and swallows it. And then serves the teacher. And this is where the term swallowing the blame comes from. Because what would any of us do in a situation? We'd blame the other cook. Holy shit! There's a snake. You know, how did the cook let the snake into the kitchen or a cockroach or whatever? What does he do? He swallows the blame. It doesn't mean you repress what you're feeling. It doesn't mean that. It just means you notice how you want to extrovert or project the energy onto somebody else. Carl Jung has a wonderful teaching about being unconscious. 
where he says, if something's unconscious, the only way you can see it is through projection. <laughs> if something's going on that's unconscious, you can't see it because it's unconscious. Actually, the whole paragraph in, this, in his book on the unconscious is really interesting. First he says, if something's unconscious, it's unconscious. <laughs> Which is so good. Because most of us think, oh, that's that unconscious thing I do? No. He's saying, if something's unconscious, it's unconscious. It means you can't know. So if you're like, yeah, I don't do so many unconscious things anymore. <laughs> well, you can know. And he says something interesting. is The only way you can see something that's unconscious is through projection. When you can't see it, you project it onto a teacher, a lover, a child. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You project it uh, onto a prime minister, a president. We do this to politicians all the time. So much so that you actually think you know something about a politician. And aside from Donald Trump, that's not true. <laughs> so, when you feel blame arising, pause and look what's happening in you. Drive all blames into one. What's the one? This is the one. When you hold on so tightly to your view about what someone else did, you're hooked. Your own self-righteousness will cause you to suffer and to be blind to how you blame. So you need a practice to work on cooling your reactivity and not escalating it. And I think because we live in a culture where gossip and blame are um, condoned, I think it's easy to do a lot of blaming and a lot of negative gossiping and not realize it. And I say this especially to those of you in Kelowna, in a small town where there's lots of gossip. If there's somebody doing something that you're not into, just don't put energy into that. But don't go around talking about the thing the person's doing that you don't like. Why do that? That doesn't help our community. Be careful with how you speak. There's a lot of blame and there's a lot of projection. If there's another meditation group that does weird kind of meditation, then, like, don't talk about them. No, I mean it. I really mean this. Like, don't talk about it. If you're like, I'm not really into that group that does the wine meditation, then, like, don't talk about it. Do you see what I'm saying? Just don't say anything. Just shut up. Yeah. And, like, just really talk about this group and how great this group is. Yeah. Like, why put your energy into continuing the gossip? You know it. You know that already. And every time you say it, you're confirming what you know already. So why is that interesting? That's not interesting. Now, you might warn someone and say, 
be careful about the group doing the wine meditation because when I walked out of there last time, I banged my head because I was so drunk. And, right? So, like, be careful when you go to the pyramid, you know. But for everybody else, you know, so you just don't talk about it. Does that make sense? So, this approach really reduces suffering for yourself and for other people. And I am so bad at this. I, like, I'm really, really bad at this one. I want to get better at this one. Because I notice in myself all the time, I live with my in-laws, okay? And, like, whenever something's off in the house, I blame them right away. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I do. And then my wife, whose parents they are, of course she does. But then I realize I blame them like I used to blame my younger siblings, which kind of infantilizes them. And my wife agrees because, of course, if it's your parents, you're going to agree with someone blaming your parents <laughs> if you lived with them. So I feel like I really have to get better at practicing this. So that's what I do nowadays. I have an espresso machine, and like I don't want anyone to touch it. Okay, But when I go away... They decide to make really interesting drinks with the espresso machine. Drinks that it was probably designed not to make. <laughs> and so I come back and the machine's all cleaned up as if nobody had done anything. But like, I can tell. Isn't that back in the beginning, the obsessiveness one? <laughs> yeah. And that leads to the last point of the day, which is drive all blames to one and really cultivate gratitude. So grateful. So grateful. So, probably if I came to Kelowna more regularly, we would have just worked on point one today, all day. And then tomorrow we'd work on point two, the day after we would do maybe some of point three, and really slowly. But I feel because you guys are practicing together on Wednesday nights, that like you should have a lot of material. And now you should go through this in detail. So my suggestion is, um, sit still every day. Every day, find a time where you can organize a cushion, sit down, and set a timer, and feel your breathing, just like we were. Natural breathing. For 20 minutes. 20 minutes. How many of you are on Facebook? Who's on Facebook? Okay. So if you're on Facebook, you have time to meditate <laughs> every day, yeah, for 20 minutes. So every day sit still, and on days when it's really hard to get to the cushion, you're not motivated, you're hungover, whatever, then um, go to my website 
there's tons of guided meditations. Get a guided meditation and listen to that for the time that you've allotted for sitting and let that guide you if you don't have the motivation. Okay? So that's one part of the practice. When the timing ends, bow, stand up, oh, set up your cushion, fix your cushion, stand up and go do your day. Okay? Now, for the next month, let's all take one of the bumper stickers. So look at the bumper stickers. Let's all look at them. Just scan them again, the ones we've covered. Seeing everything as a dream, examining the nature of awareness, not being stuck on peace, beginner's mind, driving all blames into one, turning mishaps into a path. So just go through it. See which one stands out to you. Has everybody found one? Okay. On the count of three, let's say out loud which one we're going to work with. We'll all say it at the same time. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Driving all blames into one. Oh, most people are doing the one I'm doing. Okay, so for a month, let's put that on our fridge. Okay, write it on your fridge. So for me, it's driving all blames into one. I won't put it on my fridge because I don't want my in-laws to see, but I'll do it in my office. And let's practice that all day. That's our mantra. All day, remember, driving all blames into one. Or seeing everything as a dream. Seeing everything as a dream. So that's the second part of your practice. Daily sit, driving all blames into one. Then, the third part of your practice is one or two days a week, do the Tonglen meditation. I think that sitting early in the morning is so good. The atmosphere is quiet, your body is still, your mind is quiet. Um, but that doesn't work for everybody's schedule. So if it doesn't work for your schedule, find another time of the day you can sit. And sit then. But it's important that you have a rhythm in your day. Right? So try and make it the same time every day, if possible. And don't take weekends off. <laughs> if you live with somebody, how many of you live with someone who practices? Okay. Sit with them. Yeah. Like, come on, let's sit together and sit together. It's so good for your relationship. It's so good to sit together. And if you live with somebody who doesn't practice and has no interest in practice, you can ask them once in the next year to practice with you. One time. Do you hear that? Once. One time. And if they're not interested, you have to wait another year to ask them again. You're only allowed to ask them once a year for four years. <laughs> no, listen carefully. Once a year for four years, and then after four years, you can split up. Okay? 
Do you get the idea? You just embody and model the practice. If you embody and model the practice, people will be practicing who live with you. They can't help it. If you embody the practice, you create an atmosphere where other people will just be practicing. It just happens under the surface. People can feel it. They don't even know what they're feeling, but it changes. So all the parents who always say to me, give me practices for my kids, I always say, why don't you sit? <laughs> There's a practice for your kids. <laughs> you had your hand up. I saw asking my husband, what, five or six times last night to come. Is, is, does that mean I've used up all my... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I even yeah. gave him a last call. <laughs> yeah. Do you use iCal? No. Do you have like a computer calendar? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So on your calendar, mark today, and so that it can be an anniversary that repeats, is that <laughs> next year at this time, you can ask him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes? How do you spell Tonglen? Tonglen. Yes. I do now because I just recorded it, which means it will be on my website and it will be on the ENSO website within the year. It'll be on the It only takes a year if you video record your audio talk. Okay. Um, yes? If I, yeah, if I sit in the morning, I usually sit before I brush my teeth. Yeah. Um, and if I sit later in the day, I sit when I can later in the day. Yeah. I used to always sit in the morning, and now it's much more helpful for my family if I wake up with my three-year-old and keep him out of the room of the baby. Um, literally, that's my job, is like to make sure he doesn't go see the baby. Because he feels like if he's up, everyone should be up. So, yeah, I'm like a bodyguard. Like a three-month-old. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, can't, I just can't sit at that time. I also think, like, if you have children, it's really good for them to see that you have a cushion set up in your bedroom or whatever as they grow up. And even if they never sit on it, they see sometimes that you've sat on it. And then one day they're 20 and they get dumped and they lose their job and they, like, have no idea what to do. They'll have this memory of, oh yeah, my mom used to sit. The Buddha, when he was falling apart as a young man, the way he decided to start sitting was, the story goes, is that he had a memory of being at an agricultural fair and leaving the fair and lying down in an apple orchard and looking up through the trees at the sky. And he felt like at the bottom of the tree looking up, it was the most peaceful he'd ever been. 
So when he was in his early 30s and he decided to start sitting, he started sitting under trees. Because as a child, that was his internalized memory of peace. And I think that our kids um, who see us practicing and sitting still, even if your kids are in their 20s or 30s, um, just them seeing you and having that image actually creates a very deep imprint in their imagination. So when the going gets tough, they have an image of what the possibilities are. If their image is the going gets tough and mom gets hammered, then probably that's what they'll go to. Oh, it's getting hard again. Or maybe they have an image of, I remember when my mom used to get hammered. And now it's amazing to see her sit still. I didn't know my mom could ever sit still. And that will inspire them. So modeling the practice. One more question? Or? I was going to add to what you were saying because my daughter who just turned seven requested her own cushion for her birthday. Mm. She doesn't last 15 minutes, but just that that was even a desire. Can you just sit on the bed? Do you have to be on a cushion? Yeah. <laughs> you can sit on a chair too, but don't use your bed. No? The temptation mm-hmm. of going back to sleep is so strong. It's so comfortable to sit on the bed. I never go back to sleep, but it's just really comfortable. Go sit on the floor. Okay. I'll get on the floor. Yeah. Nice try. <laughs> So are there any last questions or comments before we wrap up? So thanks so much for having me here uh, in Kelowna. I really like coming here. And uh, the ENSO community that's developing is really inspiring. Um, Communities developing is really, really, really rocky. People come, people go, people have expectations, people work too hard. People don't put in enough energy. I mean, it's constantly like this. And that never changes. It's always like this, no matter how big or established a community is. And so because of that, I really encourage you to come and sit with other people and really like jump in to the fray that is a community. A community is always a bit of a mess. Okay. <laughs> And so I really encourage that. And also because in our culture, that's a culture of consumption and production. It's so good to have a space that's not about consuming and producing. That's not competitive. It's really, really important. So I really hope that that non-competitive space can get established in this community and really grow roots. Uh, Because we really need it. And the interesting thing to me that I see happening from the outside is that there's a strong interest in developing programming for young people, but there hasn't been as strong as a commitment for adults Mm -hmm. to really drop into this practice. All the parents want their kids to do the practice, but they're not practicing. 
And I think that that's backwards. Mm -hmm. I feel like we really need to be embodying the practice, uh, especially those of us who teach or are in the helping professions or have children around. This is really, really important. So that's the only cheerleader-ish thing I'm going to say mm -hmm. about, uh, about community practice. But how can you teach kids to practice if you don't practice? Agreed. Yeah, totally. <laughs> So, um, like I said, and like Melissa said, uh, most of the weekend has been recorded. I didn't record any of the question and answer, uh, any discussions. Um, but when I'm speaking, it's been recorded, and hopefully that'll go on my website and the ENSA website uh, for, for all of you. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much. And I can hang out for a few minutes if, if anybody wants to come and talk. Yeah.